So Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has been somewhat uh, controversial for a lot of people, and those people are not people whose opinions I genuinely uh, value when it comes to storytelling in movies. These are usually the folks who just appreciate a story on a very superficial level. Alright, so what do I mean by that? Well, a lot of them knock on this particular final chapter of the Guardians of the Galaxy series as being so dour and serious and gritty and dark. And it's like, do you remember the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie? They go to prison within the first act. Like, the entire lot of them are in prison. So, it's genuinely frustrating when people don't understand just how a film can have this very different tone. You know, they, they put so much music in it and whatnot to kind of lighten it. But in the end, what you're looking at is a very dark series. It's not lighthearted and easy and whatnot. Like, within just that prison sequence when they're in different settings and whatnot, Gamora almost gets shanked. I mean, it's just part of the story. They treat it like it's nothing because, oh, they're going to break out, and then the breakout sequence is, of course, fantastic. But all of that movie is very dark. Groot dies. It is a sad movie. Peter goes through a whole thing where he pictures his mom reaching out for him from beyond the grave, saying, hold my hand. You know, one, one of the elements of it that actually lightens it up at the end is when they play uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and they're showing uh, John C. Riley with his family, and uh, they're all having a hug and a cuddle, because we saw this uh, mother and child before when um, when uh, the Inquisitor and his forces were attacking. So it's worth noting, this was always a dark series. It wasn't lighthearted, campy fun. Just because you have very bright colors and you have that um, up-tempo top 40s music does not mean that it is all light-hearted and fun and bubbly. Oh, it's too dark for you? What did you think happened to Rocket? Rocket shows us in his first uh, entrance into the film when we see him uh, that he has all of these uh, metallic parts to him that he's clearly cybernetically augmented and was an experiment yeah, we knew darn well going in the door that Rocket had a dark part to his past. And that's all it was ever going to be. And we get to find out exactly what the story is with him. We get a lot of resolution with this particular story. For instance, we get an answer to the question as to why Peter never tried to hook up with Nebula after... Uh, Gamora kind of went away because she didn't know Peter and needed to go find herself. And it's not because he doesn't find her attractive or because he doesn't like her, but just that 
uh, she really isn't interested in him or anyone. She is, um, she's what we would call Cade sexual, where abuse kind of formed her sexuality to where she really can't let her guard down to anyone because she's been hurt so much. She may not even have sexual organs anymore, thanks to her father having her rebuilt as a cyborg over and over and over again. And really, it's fascinating that we get all of, the, all of this different character development with all of these different characters, and we really get to find out a lot about what's going on for them. And there are comedic moments. For instance, Nathan Fillion has a very comedic role right there in the movie, and that was kind of an out-of-nowhere cameo. You have a very different style between Peter and Gamora and Nebula, where Gamora is very much acting like Thanos' daughter, where when she wants something, she snarls and yells and uses force, just like uh, Nebula was in, in the first place and very often still is. They're very much still a creation of what happened to them. So beyond that, what else? Well, Groot is back to a fully grown adult Groot and also uh, does uh, some amazing things like grows to kaiju size and in another scene is destroyed completely and is just a head crawling around on some little root stubs. You get a lot of work done with Adam Warlock and in general it's just good. Mantis actually gets her own scene with uh, Drax the Destroyer where she winds up kicking pretty much the most butt between the two of them. So that's pretty amazing. Now the music is not quite as good because a lot of it isn't some of those really great classic top 40s. A lot of it is more stuff that just seemed to get picked out of what they could get. Another thing is that James Gunn really wanted to write around some of the issues with regard to uh, what happened in Infinity War and Endgame so that they had Gamora back but it wasn't the Gamora that we had in the first two Guardians of the Galaxy movies because at some point during Infinity War uh, the directors of that movie who also I think co-wrote it just decided they were going to use that relationship with Thanos in some fashion to sort of have a sort of rule game or something for the Soul Stone. It's pretty weird when you get down to it. But they were trying to have like some kind of dark aspect to it that could come up in the first half and the second half. So I don't necessarily hate it. And the writing that Gunn did on this made it so that um, it was almost reset to how things were before in the uh, at the end of the first film so that you have a little bit of hope but also Peter is like thinking finally well I need to go back to earth and find my grandpa and just live a normal earth life for a while 
so that I can just sort of reclaim myself. Uh, Drax is given a scene where he gets to shine not as a combatant against any kind of adversary, but as someone who just a few scenes before was called an idiot, was called stupid, and he is able to show up not only Nebula, but Mantis. And they try to play up the fact that Drax is a little bit sweet on Mantis, and Mantis is even a little bit sweet on him too, but she spent so much time with Ego and then so much time with the Guardians that she really needs to go spend some time by herself at the end. So all of the story resolutions really are good, and you even have some great voice work done by Linda Cardellini, who I believe plays like an otter or something in this. Because they needed a really good voice actor, and she hasn't been in too much since mostly she just played um, Hawkeye's wife in a few scenes here and there. But she's such a good actress, like beyond just being Velma. Her work on Freaks and Geeks was amazing. She's always been a really impressive actress, and they needed someone to be just good in this role. So it was worth it. So the otter's name is Lila, and this is part of a story that happens in a flashback while Rocket is out cold because it turns out that he has kind of a kind of kind of a self-destruct device inside of him, a kill switch, I think they call it. And it's intended as this uh, plot device where he's not in the story for the most part. He's reliving his earliest days where we get to see sort of what Rocket was like and find out a bit more about who he was and that he did start out very innocent, like a lot of us do. So it reminded me a lot of Lilo and Stitch because you have uh, his creator, the High Evolutionary, played by, uh, pardon my pronunciation, Chukwudi Iwuji. I might be butchering that, but anyway. So this is a humanoid being, uh, a scientist, who kind of puts eugenics into a whole new ballgame by trying to create hybrid creatures that are either uh, cybernetically enhanced like Rocket is and have like just this horde of uh, monstrous atrocities made from, oh, pigs and eagles and all other kinds of creatures. And then he also tries to make humanoid evolved versions, sort of like Ninja Turtles, of um, just very simple creatures. So, for example, the first one that they do is a turtle. And then we finally see the ultimate realization of that particular uh, strain of his research when you have an entire planet of animal people. And although many of them are very human-looking, there are also some very distinct animal features, like one group have very big bat ears. Um, then you have panda people that are basically just humanoid pandas. And you have bug people who are just people with bug faces, and octopus people who, are, who have sort of a human body but also have 
all the tentacles. So the head is basically like an octopus, just on top of a human body. So it's really an island of Dr. Moreau kind of situation where they've been altered in various ways in order to be more like humans, but they are still very much animals. And they speak a different language, which is actually a really good plot point. They have to try to communicate in such a way beyond regular language. They're used to being able just to talk with aliens as if it's nothing. So this is one of the only instances in which language is actually a barrier. Because it, it makes it so easy when uh, you can just talk with any alien race. That just makes it so easy. But when you have a definite language barrier, Peter is absolutely weirded out because... Uh, this world is made to look exactly like Earth in so many ways. Atmosphere, water, land, uh, the buildings. There are just subtle differences beyond the people that make a huge difference. Such as the Statue of Liberty is replaced with a statue of the High Evolutionary. So all this stuff just kind of goes on and on and on as you're going through this story. And a lot of it is very subtle. But it's also brilliant, and it showcases why Gunn is such a good writer and director. He puts in the subtle touches that really help as a storyteller. Every character is given something to do. Every character is given a moment to shine, not just one or two main characters and then that's it. Every character is quite different from the other characters. And sometimes they're saying, like, what are you doing? Or they don't even know what the others are doing. So it's not a perfectly coordinated plan. Only in one scene between uh, Peter and Groot do you get the sense that they ever knew what to do with one another. So beyond that, um, the story involving Rocket's earliest years gets very dark. It has a Secret of Nim quality to it, if you remember some of the backstory on the Secret of Nim with uh, the rats of Nim and how they were experimented with and eventually became intelligent and were able to escape. So in this particular case, that's kind of the situation we're getting here. The creatures that they produce are terrifying at first like you have uh, a bunny rabbit that has been given multiple limbs like a spider you have a walrus that has been given certain amounts of intelligence and because it doesn't have back legs rolls around on a couple of very thick wheels you have an otter the the otter i mentioned named uh, lila who has uh, been altered so that although it has the same back legs it has uh, essentially robot arms yeah so these are horrifying but you talk to them you, you get to know them the way that rocket does and you find out oh this is actually a very nice group this is a good group right so, other aspects to it. Um, the High Evolutionary does refer to Rocket as an abomination, and partially because 
he is very frustrated that what he considers a lower life form and a failed experiment, just another cybernetically enhanced animal that is really just there to be an enforcer, not a proper, highly evolved being, was able to outthink a lot of his top researchers in figuring out the problem with their evolution chamber machine. So this little creature, who's still very young, said, it seems like you're having a problem with that, and he doesn't know all the words for it, but he understands the thinking behind it. And they showed that in his short amount of time there being alive and growing up, as he is, he has uh, come to master very complex math. So he's not stupid. And he's even demonstrating this to the high evolutionary, and yet they can't be bothered to understand, oh, yeah, it's actually a very intelligent creature. Because we know that raccoons are very intelligent in a very scrappy survivor kind of way, but still, they're very intelligent. They can figure out things that are surprising to a lot of us, that think that they're so low. And that's where I bring in the Lilo and Stitch analogy, because um, you have uh, Stitch being called by his creator an abomination, and he's like, or, or maybe it's the, the big uh, shark-looking guy from uh, the Galactic Court or whatever. But uh, anyway, he responds, you know, but I'm also cute and fluffy. You know, so everyone just wants to look at Rocket and say, you know, you're trash, you're no good, you're an abomination. And in the end, one of the things that is genuinely touching about the story is when someone does see value in him, like Groot, like Peter. Peter actually refers to him multiple times as his best friend because he lost uh, Gamora, and uh, there's a bit of a running gag with Drax saying second best friend, and I think that's partially because he thinks that he's uh, Peter's best friend, but also he thinks that maybe Gamora was his best friend. Anyway, but it's just an interesting little complex nugget of different storylines. Someone noted that it felt a little bit like it was part of a very long episode of a Guardians of the Galaxy TV series. And I would disagree. It is more like a multi-part episode or an, an entire season of a Guardians of the Galaxy TV series, largely because it is such a small story, where in one act they're in one place, and then in an, in end mysteries have arisen. In another act, we get this um, interaction between the Golden People from the second movie and the High Evolutionary. So it just kind of carries on from there. So you get the sense that, oh, yes, they're on a journey. They're on a quest to help their friend Rocket, who is uh, having problems, who is on the edge of death. They can't use these med packs that they establish in this story that can treat anything. You just apply them to the body, you turn them on, and they can heal you of anything. 
Like, isn't that a convenient little plot device that you can just engage a med pack to heal almost any wound? But it's a brilliant little device, because if you're flying around in space, why wouldn't you have something like that? Yeah, you might have some scar tissue. Yeah, you might have some other things going on. But why not have something like that? So as stated, the story is complex. You have interweaving storylines. You have uh, some tragedies that cause changes in the characters. Adam Warlock goes through an entire story arc in this movie, and we barely get to know him throughout much of it. We get to know him in some of the scenes beyond just uh, the initial scenes where he's attacking the Guardians in nowhere. But it's really interesting, because you wouldn't normally have someone who starts out a villain go through a crisis of conscience and a change over the course of a story, except for Gamora, and even Nebula. So it's not uncommon, but there are people who think, oh, well, this isn't like the others. It kind of is, as soon as you look at the elements. Different characters go through journeys. One of the greatest parts to it is Dave Bautista is captured along with Mantis and Nebula, and they encounter a bunch of children that the High Evolutionary has developed and designed in order to be his new perfect race. And uh, neither Mantis or Nebula know the language that they're speaking. So shortly after they call him stupid, Drax just comes up and speaks the language as if it's nothing. But first, he calms the children down by showing them that he is a nice person. So he um, he begins making, you know, he talks to them gently. He begins making monkey sounds because at first the two women are screaming and yelling at the kids. And Mantis is trying to gesture, but is just confusing them. Nebula and she start yelling at each other. And then he's like, you know, you guys don't know how to deal with children. You know, he says to one of them, you remind me of my daughter. And she always loved it when I made monkey sounds. And he begins making an attempt at monkey sounds and uh, a sort of goofy movement or dance that, you know, has the kids kind of kind of giggling with him because he's playing a bit. And this leads to a really great quote where, you know, they they look at this guy, Drax, who's big and muscular and has a deep voice and he's very capable of, of callousness and meanness. And they realize that he is still very much the dad. You know, yes, he was angry at Thanos for killing his wife and children. And that's who he's been for a long time throughout this series. But he also has always been a dad at heart. He loved his kids. He loved being a dad. That's who he was. So right there, we have part of the story that is completely upending a lot of gender stereotypes about men being unable to be nurturing and sensitive and caring and trying to say that women are somehow innately gifted at working with kids right then and there in that one scene 
it diffuses a lot of traditional gender roles and just says a person is a person. A person can be whatever and whoever they are. They do not have to fit into your little narrow box. There can be dimensions to them. And then lo and behold, he starts speaking their language and communicates exactly what they were wanting to say to them in the first place, Nebula and Mantis, and does so very easily. And they say, why didn't you tell us you spoke their language? And he's like, you didn't ask. They were so busy rushing ahead because they assumed that only they could know how to do anything. That's called a Superman complex, when you assume that nobody else can possibly be capable of doing anything for you but you. That's a level of narcissism that is very problematic, obviously. So I loved just that one scene. I loved so many parts of this story. It was so memorable, easily on par with the other two volumes of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So it works, okay? It just works in ways that nobody else seems to really appreciate. You have a lot of cast returning for things. So for example, Michaela Hoover was Nova Prime's assistant in the first film, and she voices the rabbit. And of course, uh, the actor playing the High Evolutionary worked with James Gunn on Peacemaker. So there's that tendency for uh, Gunn to sort of bring back some actors that have worked with him before to work on other projects, whether it's Marvel or DC. That's pretty cool. I loved it. I thought it was some of the best storytelling that has come out of the MCU in a long time. And while it's a goodbye for uh, Gun to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it also shows that he really has the chops as a writer, a director, a producer to bring the best out of a cast, giving them all something to do, giving them all little moments so that they love coming back to be in his movies, so that they love working with him. They have fun. It isn't just, uh, oh, come on, do this because you're under contract. No. They all get a moment to shine. They all get uh, a reason for what, why they're doing what they're doing. There's certain behaviors that they do, little gestures that they work into the scenes that help tell the story of who these people are so that we don't just feel like these are two-dimensional characters. That was a big problem with just Drax, for example. And it was kind of a running gag that uh, he didn't understand metaphor, that his people, his culture, didn't really have that. So they bring that back when he's trying to talk to Peter and, you know, sort of give him a little bit of a cowboy speech, a little bit of a booster. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. That works. And then as we go on with the rest of the story, it just carries on from there. It works very well. So I feel like this is one of the strongest. It's definitely stronger than Volume 2, which was really good, mind you. 
It had your little separate stories where uh, Rocket and Nebula and um, and the Ravagers and everything are doing their whole thing. And then you have an entirely other story going on with Ego and uh, Peter, Gamora, all of that. It's fascinating. But in this particular one, you have two stories being told simultaneously, and then when they arrive at the at the planet, uh, the which is called Counter-Earth, they have sort of multiple stories being told, and then some storylines converge. You have a really decent story told here. Everyone's giving something to do. Even the dog from the Christmas special, that's just like a little one-hour special that they made um, sort of as part of things where they were using a few locations and uh, using a few sets from the upcoming film. So they went and made this, and they introduced the character of this cosmonaut dog that was also introduced in the first film, if you recall. It was one of the characters in the cages at the collector's, uh, you know, treasury or whatever you would call it. Anyway, so you have this cosmonaut dog that they call Cosmo, who has a little translator device and speaks English with a Russian accent. So it works. It's interesting. I love that people are kind of saying, oh, it's not as good. But no, it really is as good as you could kind of hope for. I mean, I remember just how sad the first film got at points. I remember just how sad the second film got at points. You know, at, when uh, when Ego talks about having given Peter's mom the tumor and then sending uh, the Ravagers to kidnap him, and then he briefly turns into uh, David Hasselhoff. And, um, you know, this is, I think, after he crushes Peter's Walkman with the uh, tape his mother made, the mixtape, inside. And it's just like... You know, this is Peter's lowest point. All of the Guardians are at their lowest point there. Um, you know, they're, they're all gradually being taken down by Ego, and they aren't quite sure what the heck they're going to do. This is a dark series. It is not all lightness and fuzz and, you know, little happy friends bouncing around. No. And... Some of it is a message on animal experimentation. Some of it is a message on eugenics. But a good story is something where you can get a lot out of it, like I have just now for you. You have some gender politics in there. You have some humor, some social relations. You have some elements of interpersonal relationships, getting over breakups. You, you realize that there's a lot more to it than just what's on the surface. And a lot of that comes from the writing and directing. Some of it comes from the actors bringing in what they do, of course. But on a very fundamental level, this particular bit of material, you have to give credit to James Gunn, along with everyone else. They gave everything 100% effort. They gave it just the right look so that, like, the animal people look weird. 
They look a little bit like humans, but they look a little bit weird, too. So it's not as simple as everything. They have just an entire scene involving Nebula trying to get into a car, an Earth-style car, and thinking that the design is stupid because she can't just open it because it has a separate push button. So, kind of interesting, right? It, it kind of works. It's an interesting enough, as enough aspect to the story that I feel that every little moment that they have, like, the same part of the story, they have a little bit of a running gag in this one scene where Drax wants to lie down on the couch. And they're like, don't do that, it's rude. You know, you're a guest in someone's home, and he's, he's like, trying to justify it while the others are having a conversation, while uh, the Bat people don't understand a word these people are saying, and yet they're getting very heated with one another, while the Bat people just kind of look on and offer them something to drink and everything. It's pretty cool because you can sort of see what it's like in reversal from... Uh, the animal people's point of view, where they see a spaceship land right in the middle of their suburb. And they have no idea what's going on with that. And for some reason, they didn't just go and land right down at the big uh, pyramid that they had there that uh, one, of the, one of the animal people points them to. So instead, they figure out like, okay, so we're going to go and we're going to try and uh, get the um, get the uh, fix for Rocket so that we can heal him and everything. It works. It works a heck of a lot better than some of the plot points I've seen in other movies. So with all that said, check out Guardians of the Galaxy 3 for yourself. And tell me what you think. Did you think that some of the musical choices were better than others? Did you think that I was on the money with some of the character development and some of the different character roles throughout much of the story. How did you feel about it? Did you think that the tone was pretty consistent the way I did throughout much of the story and much of the uh, previous films in the series? Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.